Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Deb Richard to the show. Deb is a five-time LPGA Tour champion and a Hall of Famer at the University of Florida, where she was a golf legend during her collegiate career. She is an executive coach, a philanthropist, and the CEO of Burlap Leaders, which specializes in helping others manifest quality relationships and live with purpose. She is also the author of the book, Trust, Understanding My Why, which translates the lessons of golf into successful pathways in leading. Deb and I are meeting for the first time today, and I can assure you that although I did win gold in the chipping contest at my summer youth golf camp when I was maybe 10 or so, that is the extent of my ability to relate to Deb regarding successes on the golf course. Hopefully, we'll find some other common ground. It's an honor and a pleasure. Welcome to the show, Deb. Uh, Nicholas, it's great to be with you. You didn't share your golfing exploits with me. I'm so impressed that as a 10-year-old, you were introduced to the game. I, I might have been even a little bit earlier. My, I have two older brothers, and they really like it. And I love the game. I'm not, you know, I'm as good as a person that golfs once a year or something. But I did learn the fundamentals at a young age, so I can always kind of get on the course and mostly slap it forward. And you obviously started at a very, very young age. It must have been, right? To be so successful at, at the high school level, or did you start in a little bit later? I actually was not the Tiger Woods child prodigy starting the game at six months. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I picked up the game when I was 11, but I was an all-around sports girl. I, I, I grew up in conservative Kansas uh, with very progressive male coaches who had sons and daughters and they wanted their daughters to have the same experiences of learning from sport knowing how many life lessons come from the engagement with sport and how much you learn about yourself and others and teamwork and everything else so as uh, a nine-year-old i started uh, very active in sports i quarterbacked a girls flag football team i played third base and shortstop on a traveling softball team. And I was point guard in basketball. Oh, wow. You were yeah, just kind so of always in the, in your small community where you're growing up, you were clearly a standout. And I mean, you're at like the point position at every one of those levels. You're the quarterback, you're the point guard, you're dominating in golf. You clearly, you were one of those. You could have just chosen whichever sport you wanted. Yes and no. No, I had really, really good hand-eye coordination. And I enjoyed the calmness that came with being in that fight and being in that role. And golf was the antithesis of that. When I picked up the game of golf, I was absolutely horrible. It did not care about my hand-eye coordination. It did not care that I played all these other sports well. It was a very humbling experience, um, but it took the presence of somebody who believed in me and saw something in me that I did not see in myself to say, I want to teach you how to play the game. And from that moment forward, Ron Schmedeman gave everything of himself, put it into me and developed me into a great player that I'm not sure when I started the game, I ever would have envisioned happening. Well, we will learn more about that in your larger journey, but that's a, a lovely 
appetizer. Before we get to actually talking about food, you, you mentioned in your bio that we should ask you why you chose Burlap as the name <laughs> of your company, Burlap Leaders. So I'll bite. Why? Why? Um, think about Burlap. So I, tell, I, I like to tell this story. If I think about silk, silk is beautiful. It's alluring. It's shiny. It's all those things that we think we really like. And it draws us in. But if I hold up a piece of silk and I let it go, it falls flat. If I look at burlap and I take burlap and I do that same thing, I find strength. I find it durable. It's adaptive. It's protective. It's versatile. It's all these things that I think great leaders possess. And it's the ability to mold itself into what it needs to be in order to be what the user needs it to be. And that's burlap. Okay. I like it. Well, then we're going to figure out how you got there, why that's important to you, why that type of stuff, what lessons you learned along the way, the things that make up your book or the things that were the inspiration for the messages that you have in your book. But first, we need to know what you feed yourself in the morning. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> Let's see. This morning was a chocolate protein shake and fruit. All right. It's like you're still getting ready to go out on the course. I mean, is this yeah. one of those things where we caught you on a good day or is this pretty much every day? It's not every day. It could it could be waffles, peanut butter, and honey. Uh, it could Ooh, be a like few that. different things, but Deb stays on the healthy end of things. Where is the most unhealthy that Deb allows Deb to go? <laughs> I'm assuming we're still talking about breakfast. Yeah. Well, no, I'm yeah. saying now I want to, I know I'm expanding uh, to all yeah. meals. Where, where, I was going to say bacon. Oh, bacon okay, like yeah. That's, that's the sauce like, one. Oh, oh, sure, Everything sure, sure, sure. is better with bacon. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So the waffle, the peanut butter and honey waffles often have bacon on the side? When I can. Yes. <laughs> when we're celebrating. Well, Deb, let's dive in. You know, you've already, look, this is a world you like to live in. You've written a book about reflection, mindfulness, self-improvement, and purpose. So let's talk about your story. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? grew up in a Catholic family, uh, strong Catholic roots on my parents' side. But I would also say that after going through, obviously you go through your baptism and you go through all these, these different things. But once I reached the age of 12, I was given the choice. Do you want to continue on this journey? But you're given the option if you don't. And I actually opted out. So I, I would not say that religion has been a major fixture in my life, but faith is an enormously big piece of my life. Well, very good. I very much look forward to that distinction and what that means to you. I want to get some other kind of basics first. Do you have any siblings? I have an older brother. I do. How much older? Uh, he's two and a half years older. You always like you know, when you're, when the years are short, you have to put those halves in. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. He's two and sure. a half year, yeah. He's two and a half years older than me. He's a very right. successful dentist and uh, he's a good, he's just a super guy. That's great. That's great. Cool. And so in your, both your parents were Catholic. Do they still practice in whatever way that their Catholicism lives? In their own way. 
You know, I think for everyone in my family, there have been pieces of the faith that have been very hard to digest and fully embrace. Uh, and I think for everybody that that question and that devotion is a little bit different. Uh, but I would go back to, you know, my statement, what, how I preface myself. But I would say that all of us are, have very strong faith. You grew up in Kansas. Where were you born in Kansas? I was not born in Kansas. Oh. I was born in southern Louisiana, which is the Richard in the French uh-huh. pronunciation of the name. I am a full-blooded Cajun French girl. Oh, cool, uh, so, cool. So that's the genesis of that. We moved around quite a bit prior to us landing in Kansas when I entered the fourth grade. and We stayed there all the way through my graduation of high school. So you came from southern roots. You came from areas that are are stereotypically or quite typically very religious, maybe not necessarily Catholic all the time, but very Christian. Kansas, you mentioned conservative community. Would you consider your parents progressive as far as the religion is concerned? Or did you feel like you, did your family fit in with its conservative surroundings when you were growing up? I didn't think about it. That's an incredibly honest answer to give you, but it's true. I didn't think about it. We were successfully living life. My parents worked at Kansas State University. My dad ran the physics lab at Kansas State. My mom worked in the department with my dad. Um, We were just very successful at living life and not thinking about how that fit in the prism of everybody else. At least I wasn't. I was kind of doing my thing. I was, my brother was doing his thing. Both of us knew at fairly young ages of life exactly what we wanted to do in our lives. It was just a matter of, will we get there? Very supportive family. We didn't have a lot of those rock the boat circumstances in our world. It was a very enjoyable journey growing up in Manhattan, in my family, and it was a very comfortable, you know, figure things out as you go along life. Um, I know Manhattan, Kansas only because I am grew up a Cornhusker fan. So <laughs> it's the only reason I know that when you talk about Manhattan, where Kansas State is, and I always find it very interesting to me when I can talk to people that have relationships either directly that the person is in this position or they have in your case, parents that are deep in the sciences, physics in particular, and also practiced their religion. And it is just as common to meet someone who sees no problem with the nature of the relationship of science and faith and religious faith or religious practice, I should say. It's just as common to have that as it is for the person that says science has no place in the religious framework. And it sounds to me like there was no deep concern about that that you sense from your parents but how much do you think that that your father and mother's physics point of view their physics education and knowledge informed their faith or their relationship to the religion itself and the way it manifested for you in your youth i do want to differentiate that uh, my dad was a physicist my mom was not so she did not come out of the sciences background I think both of them had 
their own perspectives about religion for different reasons. And as a kid, I wasn't aware of them as I am today as an adult. I think the biggest thing in our house is that even from a young age, my brother and I were both treated to a lot of trust to make decisions for ourselves. We both had experiences with Sunday school and all the things that you do in that lead up. Uh, We had years of that. So we had a basis of knowledge, a basis of understanding. We went through confirmation. Uh, And then at that point, it was, what do you want to do? What is the choice you want to make for your own life? And as a kid, that's a very empowering opportunity, not only to take advantage of, but to realize that that is the opportunity you are growing up with. And you realize how many kids, all those decisions are made for them. And what happens when all those decisions are made for you, you reach a a crossroads moment in life where you are left to wonder, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for someone else? And my brother and I were given the opportunity to make that choice and those decisions for ourselves and own them. We knew that we owned the decisions. And we also knew that we had the opportunity to change that decision at any time. And our parents would be supportive either way. If we both had said, hey, this really speaks to me and I'm all in and I want to continue down this devout path, they would have supported that and they would have made sure that happened. Both of us chose and said, you know, we have gotten a lot out of this experience, but we're okay to not have this as a weekly experience. And, you know, this is where religion and faith to me are two wholly different conversations. To me, you know, religion is is taught inside, you know, a building. Faith lives everywhere. And to me, which is a big joke with a a lot of other friends I have that practice the Catholic faith and everything else, it's like for six days of the week, I'm going to live. And on the seventh day, I'm going to repent. I don't live that way. I live seven days accountable every day because I have faith. And my faith has uh, a lot of different calibrations to it to myself, to my family, to my community, to the people I love, to the people I respect, to the people I I want to make sure are nurtured and a part of my world. So faith in so many ways is so much more important to me. So faith, is faith a kind of catch-all term in some ways for you that shepherds all of these aspects of yourself that you've come to anchor yourself in? Or is faith something that you can actually make a specific distinction about, even though it doesn't fit in a religious framework? 
faith is the grounding aspect of my perspective. And this is a much bigger and broader conversation. It has to do with the book. It has to do with my life and my journey and everything else. And I speak a lot to young people because everyone has a gift to give to the world. And that gift you have to give to the world is your perspective. And it is the amalgam of the experiences of your life meshed with your values and how you interpret that. So how do I interpret my place in the world? How do I interpret how I believe other people see me in the world? So for me, faith is the grounding aspect of that perspective. It tells me that I am but one in a very big world. But my perspective is powerful and it is my responsibility to share that perspective if I wish for anything in the world to be different than it exists today. And I think we're living in times where that opportunity for people to listen to the perspectives of others and where it lies is the powerful opportunity to create a much better world than the world we live in today. All of that for me is based in that faith that I have a responsibility. I am but one of many voices and that there is something bigger in the world than me. My life is not just about my own success and that there's a real transformation that happens in life and it has everything to do with purpose when i stop feeding feeding me internally and i start taking the best of me and i am projecting it out to help make other people better that is when true purpose is emerging And that's the power of life when we are living to a life that is about external joy and bringing external joy. Because in the end, that will bring more internal joy than the seeking of something just for internal satisfaction. That's a lovely place to end the first segment. And we'll be back in a couple minutes with Deb. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. Hey everyone, we're back with Deb, and one thing I realized as we were just about to start this segment is that... She mentioned at 11 years old, 
she started golf. And at 12, she makes one of her first major independent declarations of her life. She doesn't want to continue in the religious path. And I wanted to ask you, Deb, in retrospect, do you think you had an understanding that you had struck on something that early in your life, at 11, that golf was going to be something for you? Interesting question. Uh, I don't even know in retrospect I can say that. Hmm. But what I can say in retrospect that became incredibly powerful for me, and it was my willingness to say yes without a guaranteed outcome. And this goes back, that's a big part of faith. Right? Mm. It's being able to pursue something and say yes to something without knowing where it's going. So when Ron entered my life, he made an offer to my dad. And it was, I think Deb has a lot of talent. I'd like to teach her how to play the game. I'll never charge you a dime to teach her how to play the game. But there's one condition. It has to be because Deb wants it. Deb wants to learn how to play the game. My dad came home and at the dinner table relays this story to me, and I couldn't say yes fast enough. Wow. It was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. I love being coached. And I knew that then, and in retrospect, it's very powerful. But it truly was my willingness. To not second guess ever what he said. I didn't second guess the offer. I didn't think, well, why would he want to do that? That never entered my mind. I was wholesale, yes. And I never looked back. And Ron was one of the greatest people that ever entered my life. He was, I've said this to a lot of people. I say it in the book. Everybody deserves, every athlete especially deserves, to have a coach like Ron in their life. Someone who cares as much about their development as a human being as their development of skill in the sport of choice. You know, everybody has their crosses to bear. Everybody has their, nobody comes to the arena with everything perfect. You know, everybody has their struggles and things they have to learn and everything. And Ron was so good at giving me the space to learn that. He knew the he knew the struggles that I had that I needed to get over. And he expertly knew how to coach me through that. And for me, it was I had a temper because I, I had such high expectation of myself. It was never a temper towards someone else. It was with me. It's like I always knew I could do better. I knew I could do better. And I pushed myself really, really hard. And I think in Ron's eyes, he knew that was either going to be my blessing or my curse. And he knew how to coach me around it um, and giving me the space to deal with it and learning how to thrive with it. And that's an incredible, incredible thing. So 
as you mentioned, the name of my book is Trust, Understanding My Why. Trust is an incredible thing. And I don't think people can get to yes without having trust. And trust is generally talked about as an external focus that I trust others or I, I trust this situation. But at the end of the day, there's only one trust that truly matters. Do I trust myself? Because if I trust myself, I trust the decisions that I'm making, at least why I'm making those decisions. And if I'm trusting why I am making those decisions, I can handle the negative outcome because I know I've made those decisions for the right reasons and reasons that I can validate. And as long as I'm always doing that and I'm not cutting against my own grain, then I can say yes. And there's a lot of yes that goes on in my life throughout my entire journey at different stages of my life that totally transformed me into a better person. And it just kept happening because I could say yes. That's very good. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. I think um, really knowing, I think that's something that really resonates with me is I am also someone that can relate to the idea of enjoying coaching, teaching throughout my acting career, really giving myself over to teachers. But you have to constantly be checking in to are you doing it for the reasons that you can validate and value as things that you know are right. I feel like that's what's reflecting back. Something that stood out in what you said is the key is do you believe that this is what you want and what you feel is right? It's much easier to say yes. It's much easier to say and follow that yes. It's, it starts to get muddled when you're not entirely sure anymore if something is right or if you've started your foot in the wrong direction. I imagine that's something that you talk to people quite a bit about. It seems like that stood out to me as a, a very important element of what saying yes is. I think you're hitting on it, Nicholas. I think you as an actor, think about how many times you've had an acting coach in front of you and it just it felt like butter let's mm. go back to breakfast it felt like <laughs> butter right and it just felt good and it was seamless and it was all good and then there are those times when it just it's it, like you you're talking about that there's a hesitancy and and it's that voice inside that maybe you can't articulate why but you feel like you're being led down a path that's like, I'm really getting off my journey here. I'm really going in a direction that I don't want to go. And that's that's very different than being pushed into an uncomfortableness that's a growth spurt. Mm -hmm. Those are good things. That's that being comfortable with being uncomfortable that golf makes you become so adept at because it's doing that to you a thousand times a day mm -hmm. and it's very different than that uncomfortable when that inside voice is saying uh-uh uh-uh I, I don't know why but uh-uh and i apologize for using the phrase uh-uh but that's that's my training for my dog too so uh-uh yeah. um, i'm responding to it right now i'm I've, i was just I about to take are. a bite of a cookie and i went no yeah. that's not right <laughs> <laughs> she just said, uh-uh, no. <laughs> but, but that's your values. 
Right. That's your values coming to the forefront going, no, this is, this is the wrong fit. And, um, and it's the ability to harness and stop that uh, when you're in that process of going in a direction that's not in sync with, you know, who you are and who you want to be. Well, I think that's great, Deb. I want to get back to, I think I need to articulate something for myself. So you were already having success as an athlete by 11. Kids start playing <laughs> the game by like six, right? You'll play soccer, then it's baseball, basketball, whatever you can kind of start picking up balls and stuff. You must have been exhibiting an athletic skill. But what does Ron see in you and even how? Like when do you pick up golf clubs amidst all the other things and why? That would be such, it would be such an overwhelming impression on him that he would say, look, despite your success at all these other things, I think you should go down this particular path. Beyond the obvious of skill. So let's just put skill aside because a lot of people have skill. It is a work ethic. It's a determination to get something right. It's being fully present in the moment of when you're trying to get it right, that nothing else interferes in that space. And that's a gift. And I coach to that a lot. Do you have the ability to be present? As an actor, you know this in space. You have to. There's no other way to succeed as an actor than being totally present because you're being asked to take on a personification that's not you. Or it's a part of you, but it's not your natural you. Oh, that's right. That ability to be present and just be that sponge. Not everybody is a sponge. And I know this when I coach. That there's some people that just say, give me more, give me more. I want more. And there's some people that challenge you on every thought you put out there. Who do you want to work with? Hmm. It's probably a little bit rare to find an 11-year-old girl in Midwest Kansas where golf, when I was growing up, wasn't that big a sport. wasn't that big a deal. No, Not many other girls even were playing. And I had a sparkle in my eye and an energy about my way that said, I want to do more with this. And given the opportunity, which he did, I did a whole lot more because he would spend 45 minutes with me. And then five hours later, I'd emerge from the driving range and going, I got it. Hmm. It wasn't just that we had the 45 minutes when I was in his presence that I worked. It was the five, six, seven, eight hours after it that I kept going. Mm-hmm. It's a focus. It's a determination. It's a it, it's a continuing to do it till I can do it right and I could do it well because I was so bad when I started and it was such a slap in the face compared to all the other sports I played that came so easy. But it was so rewarding when I finally got it right. And what became the determinant for me with golf, other than Ron's influence, was that every other sport I played was a team sport. And I learned a plethora of things about myself playing team sports. But it was in the individual sport of golf that I realized 
that however much I put into my own development, however much I put into the game, the game was going to reward me back at that same level. And that was something no team sport could do. So, Deb, how long does Ron teach you? He coaches me until my second year on the LPGA tour. I, this is what I was wondering. Did you, did you like take him with you to Florida? No. So you go down there and you have your own coaches in Florida, right? Here's the gift of working with somebody like Ron what made him a great coach. Because I've had coaches on the other end of the spectrum. Some coaches teach you to be reliant on them. Mm. Right? Ron taught me to be reliant without him. He taught me to rely on myself. He taught me why. You know, I may hit a bad shot. We all hit bad shots. But he taught me how to never hit the same bad shot twice. And so that's a whole different way of coaching. That was, he coached me to trust myself. He didn't coach me to lean on him. He coached me to stand on my own two feet. And as you think about all these things that I'm saying, all of these are validations of this extreme level of faith that I have. Mm. I have been coached and taught to be this person my whole life. I have to ask, is Ron still alive? Yes, he is. Wow. Where is he at? Is he in Kansas? He is in Florida. We have switched spots. I am now in Kansas ah, and he ah, is in ah, Florida. How about ah, that? Ah, ah, ah. How often do you talk to Ron? Not that often. In fact, you know, we, we didn't talk for a number of years and I got inducted into the uh, Kansas Golf Hall of Fame and he and his wife flew in and surprised me. And it was just such a glorious, glorious reunion. I, I keep pictures on my bookshelf here in my office and one of them is me at 15 years old with Ron on the putting green. And then there's a picture of me at 35 with Ron being inducted into the Kansas Golf Hall of Fame. And he looks exactly the same. Uh, it's just amazing. It's pretty awesome. And then obviously after, you know, writing the book, I talked to him after it. And obviously I sent it to him and he said, you know, Deb, I've got somebody who's read a lot of books in my life. But when you sent it to me, I said, I got to read this one. And he said, it made me cry. Mm. And the thing that is so amazing about Ron for all the gifts that he gave to me, I'll now tell you the inside scoop about Ron. Ron was one of the top three, four male amateurs in the country growing up playing golf. And he got drafted to Vietnam and he spent three or four years in Vietnam. And he lost his edge. And golf is a sport you need your edge it's that knowing. It's that knowing that you're going to get it done. And so he comes back from Vietnam. He does go out on the PGA Tour, but he never makes it in a very big way. He just doesn't get over the hump of that. So he comes back to Manhattan, Kansas, his home that he grew up. And he sees in me what he saw in himself as a kid. Mm. And he coached me to live the dream. And so... I fell in love with a game I hated because he loved it and he taught me to love it and I lived the dream for both of us. Hmm. That was very sweet. It's a true story. That's the amazing part. You yeah. know, that's true life is always better than the made up stuff. 
Did Ron have any children of his own? He does. He has two kids. Were you close with them or were they always like, damn it, Deb, always so much better at golf than me? <laughs> were, they <constantly, laughs> were they a little annoyed at you how know, good you were? No, his kids were so much younger. Um, oh, he okay. had his kids a little bit later. So they were always a lot younger. I knew him, but I don't know him well. Yeah. Uh, they're both very successful, both doing really, really well. And uh, Ron's incredibly proud, but n- neither one of them had an affinity for the game of golf. So, Deb, it seems like your story has such a singularity of focus from such a young age. I have to ask, are there detours along the way? There must be something along the way where there's a detour, where you lose. Where are the road bumps? Where's the detour? The moment where you almost got off the train. So I could take this with the positive story or the negative story. And both of them are incredibly impactful. The positive story is an amazing story. I am... 22 years old. I've won my first LPGA tournament. So the dream is realized. Now a champion golfer on the LPGA tournament. And I had an opportunity for that. I won in Rochester, New York. And I had an opportunity from the tournament to go back to Rochester a month after the win. And for your listeners that don't know golf and don't care about golf. I'm going to make you care a little bit about golf because golf is a really cool sport in that every tournament we play is a 501c3 nonprofit event. And what that means is we raise money for the communities we play and we go in to improve the communities where we are. And that's mm-hmm. the foundation of professional golf. I did not know that. Even as a golf fan, I don't think I knew that. I just, because I see you all getting paid because you get payouts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you everybody can, you can, sees you can, that part. You can win real money. You know, you won real money on your tour, and other people do. But what you're saying is, somehow throughout what is being raised, they can pay both the golfers that are golfing their payouts, and money is raised for the community. Millions of dollars. Yeah, cool. So the beneficiary of the Rochester tournament are summer camps for disabled kids, and I go to one of the camps at Sunshine Camp and. I talked about perspective, right? So for me, I had grown up and had you asked me prior to this moment, or as I was standing at the gates of some child camp, Deb, what's your purpose? I would have told you my purpose was to be a champion golfer, Hmm. bar none. And I walked through into that camp and there were all eight to 11 year old kids. All the campers had been brought together, various disabilities, they had made me signs. They sang me the camp song. They had balloons. They had flowers. And this little, little bitty girl in the front row holding on the flower. And all the other campers are like elbowing her, like, come on, go, go, give them to her. And so I squatted down because I wanted to be eye level with her. Because in this moment, I'm walking into that camp, champion golf to that little girl who was shaking, walking up to me, holding these flowers, I said to her, I said, are these for me? And she said, yes. So she handed me the flowers. I shouldn't say, she didn't say yes. She nodded her head because she never said a word. Which was mm. um, and I gave her a hug. She was the most fragile child I'd ever held in my life. When I walked out of those gates, my life had totally changed. 
I walked in with a purpose to be a champion golfer. I walked out of those gates knowing I had a platform to change the world and I was going to use it. Those kids could care less. They didn't know, they could care less that I'd want to golf tournament. Who cares? All they knew is I had done something that a bunch of people thought was pretty cool, <laughs> but I was taking time out of my day to say, I think you're cool. I think you're special. Changed my life. Changed my trajectory on my path. I would go on to build three nonprofits because of that. Mm. And my life really became more about giving back. And it wasn't about Deb. I still pursued my profession as a professional golfer with absolute passion. But my purpose changed. My purpose was about what I could give back to the world, not what I was going to take from the world. Deb, that's a really good spot for us to hang it up. And we're going to open the third segment with the negative story. <laughs> oh, boy. I can't wait. Thanks. How long can we drag out the break? Uh, <laughs> that's great. Not very long. I'm going to get right back in. All right. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with our last segment with Deb Richard, and it can't wait any longer, Deb. Tell me the negative story. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. So after 20 years of playing on the LPGA Tour and going through numerous injuries and surgeries and lots of stuff that I don't even want to talk about, mm. it was time for me to say enough. And when I made the decision, I had always said when I was a younger player, I never understood players who just hung on and hung on and hung on. And I, that I felt like it, I would have this moment of clarity, right, that I would just know. And I'll be darned if I didn't. Hmm. It came to me of all places in Rochester, New York. We just shared the story. It was 20 years later. I'm going, I'm done. I knew it. I was standing there on the sixth tee in Rochester and I went, I'm done. And I knew it. It was like the weight of the world just went away. I was so blissful and peaceful. And I thought, you know, that's the way it should be. When somebody decides to retire and walk away, you should feel like that. And so however peaceful I was and everything that was going on, the LPGA was actually going through a whole lot of change. Uh, we were searching for a new commissioner. I was one of the player reps, so I sat on the board. Uh, I was very active in the business side of the tour. And so we're on this search for a new commissioner. We get down to the final two candidates. We're in Philadelphia, and I'm part of the final crew that gets to interview the final two candidates. And we go through the interview process, and we go to the room after to share our thoughts. And I share my thoughts about this one candidate, and I said, the one thing that I see as the shortcoming with this candidate is that they don't have an intrinsic knowledge 
of golf, the business of golf, the legacy of golf. It's, it's a sport where those things are really, really important and how it's structured. I said, I think for them to be successful, they're going to have to hire a very powerful number two who has all that knowledge. That candidate got hired and I eventually get hired to be that person. Mm. And had you asked me when I was sitting in the room giving that analysis of their talents and their shortcomings and everything else, that I would be the person to fill that role, I would have said never in a million years. But I became that person. And it was an amazing job. It was an amazing opportunity. Lots of transformation. Okay, I have to interrupt you before you go there. I need to know more. I need to access more. The moment when you are on the sixth tee, okay? You are in the middle of a round of a professional tournament that you won 19 years prior to that. That's the tournament you won, the first win of your career that, you know, ends up leading to your story with with the young child and the flowers. So first I have to ask a question. Do you feel that as a player you won this tournament? Is it the same course? Yes. Because sometimes tournaments change courses, right? But sometimes tournaments are always at the same course. The majors move around, but the regular events are always at the same golf courses. So do you always feel that as you step back onto the course, the sort of magic of having won it once, even if it was 19 years prior? Do you feel that to some extent? Like, ah, I remember that. You know, you're going back in again. Every step, every day, that I walked that Locust Hill golf course in Rochester was like walking a dream. Mm. I felt it every time. I, I had built such an affinity to the fan base in Rochester because of my work with the kids and with Jessica and having built the foundation, doing the nonprofit work and, and everything I had done. I was so close to the community that I think the reason when I stood on that 60 and I felt such peacefulness and bliss, I couldn't have imagined retiring anywhere else because it was a place that it just filled my soul with joy. Okay. Okay. Hold on. So now you're, that's beautiful, but is this a two day tournament or just one? Four day. This is a four day tournament. Okay. Not all tournaments are four days, are they? Uh, on the men's tour, they are on the women's tour. We have both three day and four day. Okay, so this was a four day tournament. What day of the tournament are you on? It's this Friday. So it's, it's the second day of the tournament. It's Friday, the second day of the tournament. My body's hurting. Yeah. Um, and I'm not playing well. And it just it, you know it becomes such a struggle. And I stood up on the sixth day, and I, it's like yesterday. It was a beautiful day. It was clear blue sky. It was in the 70s. It was absolutely gorgeous. It's an elevated tee box. Fairway just drops 100 feet below you. And I launched this tee shot straight right into the trees. Mm. And I know, and I know, because I've played the hole so many times, that I've got nothing. That I'm absolutely, I've got nothing. And at that moment after I hit the shot, I went, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done hurting. I'm done fighting the fight. Um, and part of that is because of the injuries, I couldn't practice the way I knew I needed to practice to feel like I could win. And if I didn't feel like I could win, it wasn't the journey I wanted to stay on. It's too hard of a fight 
it's right. too hard of a life if you don't feel like you can reach the ultimate goals of why you're playing. And so when I stood on that tee and I launched that ball straight right, I walked off that tee and I knew I said, this is it. This is this is where it all ends. I was joyful. Yeah. You, so you play the rest of the round out, right? I mean, you because the cut is on Friday, right? The cut is on Friday. And ironically, I actually withdrew from the tournament after I finished the sixth hole. You just straight up didn't play after that shot. I finished the hole. And like I said, I, my body hurts so yeah, much. And no, that was, I, I, that was the big thing. Great. But I did. I withdrew after I finished the sixth hole. And I knew that was the last time I was ever going to play an event. Wow. That, thank you. I needed to have the drama of that moment. Because that, <laughs> that's a huge moment. I mean, this is a defining yeah. life moment. And it's such, an, it's such a cinematic moment. I mean, it's... Golf is a very cinematic game. We have many films that are really beautiful films about sports in general, but golf has a great cinema and drama to it because it is in the individual's journey. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a story that plays so directly to a protagonist. Every one of you are a protagonist in that story. Uh -huh. And it just is, has a beautiful, dramatic, cinematic quality to, to you realizing after that shot, like, okay, I'm going to just take it on the chin, whatever, hit these horrible shots I got to hit to get out of this area, then get onto the green. And then you just, you walked off and, but you're joyful. Clearly you're joyful, but you, you walk off in the middle of the round is an amazing, uh, is an amazing story. I think a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people, I think, why didn't you finish the round? And I think in my head, it wasn't about the round. It was about for 30 years, I had spent every ounce of breath and passion and hard work and everything into this pursuit. And I was done. And so for me, it was about the 30-year journey. It wasn't about the round. Mm. Um, it was about everything I'd gone through from 11 to 41, or 42, whatever I was, 43. Um, when I retired, it was about the entire journey. It was about everything. And I was joyful because of everything that happened in that journey. Had you asked me as an 11-year-old Kansan kid, this is going to be your life. Do you want it? I would have sat back and said, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah you know? That's great. Uh, I, I didn't have regrets. Even with all the hard things you go through, like you want the hard things. That's when you grow. That's when you learn. That's when you become a better person. I was so thankful to have had the journey. I have one more question about the actual moment, okay? Okay. What's the first thing you do? So you have to convince your caddy you're that you're not going right you have to convince a few people around you do you immediately walk into the clubhouse and just crack a beer and start laughing what do you do at that moment because there is a this is a public event i mean there are cameras there are people wondering where are you going there's lots of staff what do you do do you walk off and go be with family or friends or into the rochester community that you love or do you sit in the clubhouse and you're like just 
have a couple of beers and kick back and somehow just laugh at the insanity of it. All of those would have been an interesting story. Uh, what did I do? <laughs> what did you do? My story, my story was so well known to a degree among the play. I mean, cause the media followed me, especially in Rochester. They knew my journey. They knew the physical issues I was having. My caddies knew the physical. I mean, everybody was aware. Okay. Uh, so this was a public mystery. thing. This was a this. You live a public life when you're a professional athlete. Yeah. So people kind of know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I could, you know, I went into the locker room, and I exhaled. Mm. You know, and I called my parents. I they had no forewarning. <laughs> you know, called my parents and I said, "I'm done." <laughs> they went, "What?" Uh, and I said, no, I'm, "I'm done." I said, "I I just I can't do it anymore." So I'm done. And I, you know, I didn't tell them I withdrew after the sixth hole. I, you know, I didn't tell them any of that. I just said, I'm done. And I, and I told them, I said, I'm really at peace. Wow. And then you went home and drank a six pack. Eventually. I'm waiting for the beer payoff. Yeah. And you go, Ooh, I earned this one. Yeah. No doubt. Come on. That is one to pop the champagne on. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Okay. So you know, you're done. You're in this place that has so much emotional resonance for you. Clearly it's a place that is, it's a spiritual home for you, Rochester. And all for the right reasons, this lightning strikes. Bridge the gap from there to where you are today. Were you a player rep or you were just in the executive in, in representing the LPGA? Both. I was a player rep while I was a player. That's right. So okay. I was vice president of the Players Association. And then I became senior vice president at the LPGA Tour, hired by the new commissioner to oversee the golf experience as we travel the world. So every event and where we stage those events became my purview mm. uh, and how we navigate communities and connect with communities and deliver a great product. But why this became the negative story uh, became a real departure of values where golf is a game of honesty and integrity and without it, the game doesn't exist. I've been living that my entire life. And for me, uh, there was one way to do things. And that was uh, in full disclosure that you deal with people honestly, ethically, uh, and you just do the right thing. And that's very ingrained in me. And my integrity is means everything in the world to me. I built great relationships throughout the industry. And the new commissioner really struggled and was doing some things that I had counseled against doing. Hmm. Uh, those events ended up blowing up and not working out the way she had hoped or intended or anything else. And then, you know, I was asked to go into a meeting and lie on behalf of the commissioner to write the ship. Wow. And I wouldn't do it. I'm sure you can't tell me what you're supposed to say. No, but you know enough. Yeah. 
I was asked to fall on the sword and basically take the blame for this debacle that I had been counseling against for months. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said no, and I resigned on the spot. And what that led to was me losing everything I built my life around. And that was a love and passion of the LPG tour in the game of golf because I lost it all. Mm-hmm. I lost relationships. Um, I lost the, the coziness that comes with being a player of, that was so highly regarded. And for me, I always thought these players would give me the benefit of the doubt. You've known me for 20 years and you've known this person for a nanosecond and you're not trusting in what I'm saying. Wow. So Deb, what you're saying is, is that they told the story the way they wanted to tell it anyway. Oh yeah. And they saw your resignation as almost like an admission of failure or an admission of responsibility. Yeah. Oof. And it was just, that was not it. And I had to walk away from golf and it, it was crushing. It had been my whole life. So I set out on this journey because I was so angry. And it was really the first time that my trust had been shaken because I put my trust in someone and I got totally violated. And that had not happened to me before. And it happened at very high leadership levels. And it wasn't just the commissioner. There There were other players involved not golfers, but other players at the executive levels um, that just were exhibiting behaviors to me that were the antithesis of what good leadership should be. Mm-hmm. And I went on a leadership journey because I, I, I just couldn't make it make sense. How do people that have zero leadership ability rise up to positions of leadership? And what came of that was a decades-long journey that had me building a leadership curriculum for college freshmen and collaborating with leadership scholars from across the country to do it. Hmm. And it gave me me back. And it started validating, once again, all these great lessons that golf had taught me, all these great things about integrity and trust and honesty and, and relationships and how you have faith in the best in people. And that journey is what ultimately led me to writing the book, building my company, Burlap Leaders, becoming an executive coach, because there are so many positive aspects of being not only a good person, But being a good leader, because leading is a way of life, it's not a set of skills. It's a way of life. It's how you treat people. And what are all the facets that are a part of that? It's my values. It's my strengths. It's my purpose. And it's finding a purpose that is externally focused as opposed to internally fueled. And it's being able to bring all those things together and know that I have incredible value to bring to the world. And it's working with people to let them live that every day. 
every day, if I bring the best of myself and I give that freely to other people who are bringing the best of themselves, now we have a collaborative society, which is a far reach from where we are today. And it's a world where I hope we are moving towards because there's a lot of goodness that can come from that. Have you been able to replicate for yourself in this new career a high of presence that touches the type of what I imagine, not imagine, I understand what the euphoria of really being in the zone while you're playing would feel like. Because I know that feeling. Because acting is, a, is an athletic art. Uh, you're doing things physically with your whole body. You have to be entirely focused. People are staring at you. I perform on a stage. You perform on a course. I know that feeling when things are just humming. And I'm free and loose, but on point. Have you been able to replicate that type of resonance in your life today in this next career of yours? Do you get it in a new way? Yes. And whether it's working with an individual, working with a team, working in a classroom, whatever that environment is, and being able to take people down a journey and give them a perspective they never considered before and you watch that light bulb go off for them and you know their life will never be the same again it is that same euphoria because remember my purpose was transformed and it's about bringing the best of myself to help others find the best in themselves so when i'm in those moments and i'm either coaching teaching having those moments where we're sharing ideas and I watch that light bulb go off for someone else, it's magic. That's winning. And life is about finding ways to win. And I, and I don't mean that in the sense of when someone wins, someone loses. We all win. I'm winning by sharing my gift and they're winning because they now have a whole new perspective and they're going to run with it. And they're going to go share it with someone else. Well, that's a beautiful place to end it, Deb. I really appreciate you opening up and sharing this journey with me. I really enjoyed uh, following you along in this path. And it's very clear how rich and alive these discoveries are for you as, as you've articulated them at this stage of your life. It's very cool. It's inspiring. Um, you've given me some really nice energy and some ideas to sort of take with me as I leave. And I just want to say thanks for being here. Okay. Nicholas, thank you. You, you pushed me. I, I was intrigued to do this with you um, because I knew you would push in some directions that most people don't push me. And so I appreciate that because it always makes the conversation better. And I've enjoyed the time with you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that comment very much. And to all of you out there, thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.